you have your, your Bible, uh, you can turn to the, the book of Luke, chapter 9. Uh, we're continuing our way through the, uh, the gospel according to, to Luke. Um, this is one of the, the four <laughs> biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And uh, we actually have, have just passed an important milestone in the book um, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, they then behold the, the glory of, of Christ as he's transfigured um, on the mountain. And so from, from here forward, it's really beginning this path to, to the cross and, and to uh, Jesus suffering and dying for the, for the sins of his, his people. And so, again, uh, this is Luke chapter 9. Uh, it's on page 867 in your pew Bible. And I'll begin reading in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly, uh, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words stick into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need your spirit. We pray that the, the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So uh, Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt said this. She said, 
learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think that that's, that's really true. That I mean, imagine what life would be like if we were forced to learn everything ourselves, <laughs> that we never learn from the mistakes of others. I mean, we would, we, none of us would be alive right now here in this room to, to talk about it, that it's, it's necessary to learn from the, the mistakes, the failures of others. I mean, probably we can learn more from our own failures in different ways. Uh, but thankfully, Scripture has a, a lot of examples of people failing <laughs> in different ways. And so there are opportunities for us to learn from their failure. And that's what we see actually here in this text that so you heard me read a moment ago. We see four failures of the disciples, one after another. And so we can learn from each and every one of their failures. So here's the, the first failure, that we can learn from their lack of faith. And if you look at your, your Bible, uh, starting in verse 37, uh, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, um, and then he's, he's met by a crowd, and a man cries out, Jesus, can you come and heal my son? He has a demon. He's suffering terribly in many ways. And then he says that he'd actually brought his son to the disciples, and they tried to cast out the demon, and they failed, that they were unable to help. And so then we start to get a clue of, of why this is the case, that, that Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to bear with you? And so in a way, what, what he's doing is he's, he's wrapping the disciples among the, the faithless and the twisted generation. And um, as some of you may know, that the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a lot of the same stories from different perspectives. And so when Matthew and Mark tell this same story, they, they add a little bit at the end where after Jesus casts the demon out of the boy, they come and they ask Jesus, why couldn't we do it? What, what went wrong? And Jesus says that it was your, your lack of faith. Um, and this is a demon that can only be cast out through prayer. And it, implying that they, they weren't devoting themselves to prayer, which is the you know, very heart of, of faith itself. And so I think as we, as we reflect on this, that there are implications of that for us in our lives as well. And I think that, that, that first of all, that the disciples couldn't solve every single problem. And, and of course, it was because of their, their lack of faith but we also can't solve every single problem that we, we face, that we are also part of the, the faithless and, and twisted generation. And, and so there's the, this call of, you know, to go to the Lord in, in prayer and say, Lord, strengthen my faith, strengthen my, my prayer life. Let me have more faith even tomorrow than I had today. But then also I think that we see here that the danger of thinking that we can somehow meet all of the problems of the world through our own strength and our own wisdom. Because sometimes people will come to us individually in different ways and, and they're, they're just calling out for help like this father was to the disciples. And we think, maybe I can help. We try to help and then we, we fail and we see that we're unable to help. Or... Or even people sometimes will come to a church or they'll come to, to Hope Church and they'll think maybe I can find some sort of help here from the things that I'm facing and the things I'm going through. And then they, see, they say, I'm not sure if these people are actually able to help. 
And that doesn't mean, though, that, there, that there's no hope. Because thankfully, even though the disciples couldn't help, the man goes directly to Jesus, who has the power to heal, heal who actually can make a difference in that situation. And so I think, first and foremost, when we see our inability to help others individually and together, there's this, this, this call of saying, you know, point people to the one who actually does have the power to heal, the, the power to save. And so that's the, the first lesson that we can learn from the disciples' lack of faith. And then second, we can learn from their lack of inquisitiveness. Uh, look in your, in your Bible at the second half of verse 34. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. And I, I love that. Let this sink into your ears. Understand this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so, they, they, so that they may, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so again, Jesus predicts his suffering. He predicts his, his death. We've seen this already in the book of Luke. Uh, but the emphasis here is on the, the failure of the disciples to understand. It says they did not understand. It was, it was concealed from them. And then part of it is that it says that they didn't understand and then they were afraid to ask any further questions. And I, and I think that, that sometimes uh, people look at Christians and they, they think, Christians are anti-intellectual. They don't ask questions. They don't understand. They don't care when they don't understand. And there are definitely times when, when that is true, where we don't understand, we don't ask questions, we, we stick our head in the sand. We're a lot like the, the disciples here. But unlike them, our, our call as believers is to be inquisitive, that we're actually called to ask questions when we're reading the Bible. Um, when we're studying the word, we ask tough questions. Uh, and that, that's something that I, I try imperfectly to model even when I, when I preach or teach, just asking lots of questions of the passage. What does this mean? Why is this important? Does, this, does what I'm seeing here kind of seem to contradict something else that the Bible says? And if so, how do I resolve this? Does this actually relate to my life? And so it's important to ask questions, but especially when we aren't understanding, when we don't know what's being said. And I think that, that this idea, it's, it's not just when we're reading the Bible. And I, I don't know about you, but I've had the times in my life where I'm going to buy something, and I'm working with a salesperson, and they explain the product, they explain the cost, they explain everything. And then I sort of zone out at some point while they're explaining it. And then you kind of, okay, I think I understand how this, this works or how much it costs or how the fees work or is there a cancellation policy or do they have a return policy? I think I understand these things, but I'm always sometimes not sure, so I just kind of go with it and just buy it. And so I don't seem like silly or like I didn't, you know, like I wasn't listening out of um, pride. <laughs> Um, and so remaining silent, not understanding, not asking questions, and then, you know, suffering, pain more in the end. But that's so often what we do spiritually, where we read the Bible or, or we hear a, a doctrine that someone's teaching or something is, is said in the church, and we don't want to seem stupid. We don't want to seem like we don't understand. 
Um, and so we remain silent. We do it with the, the disciples, and, and therefore we actually miss out on the opportunity to understand because you wonder, they didn't see the significance of the cross until after the fact, even though Jesus over and over again was telling them that it was going to happen. And how much easier it would have been to, f to face all the things that they faced if they had just asked more questions, <laughs> and if they had only understood. And, and how often we don't understand, don't apply, don't really live faithfully to what Scripture is saying because we're not understanding, we're not asking questions. And so that's the, the second lesson from the disciples' failure that we can learn from their lack of inquisitiveness. But then, then third, we can learn from their lack of humility. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives uh, me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so the, the disciples start arguing about who is the greatest. And I'm, I'm really curious of what the conversation actually looked like. Well, I'm greater, or he's greater, or you know, this person's greater. Uh, that they're trying to rate themselves as disciples. And so you almost wonder if they're, they're saying, you know, yeah, Peter got points for confessing Christ as the Messiah, but he, he lost points on the Mount of Transfiguration when he asked silly questions and opened his mouth. Or, or you know, John gets points for being the beloved disciple, but, but loses points for being a little bit too kind of vague and artistic, you know, from his gospel. Or you could keep going down the list with, with each of the disciples. And I wonder even where Judas fell on that list. Or was he, he was probably at the top. They thought Judas is the one who really has it together because he cares about the, the poor and you know, manages the finances for the group. So they're, they're rating their, their status. But then Jesus is very displeased. Uh, he's not happy with them, and, and so he calls out their, their lack of humility, and he does it by pointing at a child. So he, he points at a child, takes a child beside him, and says, be more like this. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And I think that that comes down to the idea of, of status. And it's a little bit harder for us to understand in our culture today because our society has kind of an idolatry of, of youth where we see people becoming more irrelevant as they get older in our society. But ancient society and probably most societies around the world respect elders and, and, and say the children are the ones who need to remain quiet because they're the ones who are, who are foolish, who don't understand, and then eventually they'll grow into a heart of, of wisdom. And even though our culture maybe, again, has an idolatry of, of youth as opposed to you know, res respect for elders, I think that practically we recognize this, and even in our culture, where you know, children aren't elected to, to high offices. Children can't drive until a certain age. Children aren't made CEOs of prominent companies, or uh, children don't do brain surgery. Um, as much as you, you love your child and you think that they're, they're, they're wonderful, like, you don't want them operating on your, your brain. 
uh, that there's a certain amount of wisdom and knowledge that we, where we want kids to grow. And so we recognize this, but it would have especially been the case in the first century. But then Jesus says, actually, that, that children are, are the most important members of the community. And, you know, I think that that has implications for the way that we think about children's ministry, even in the, the church today. But Jesus is saying that children aren't important because of their, their knowledge and their wisdom, but actually they're, they're important because they are weak and, and dependent. And that there's a sense in which children then provide a, a picture of who we are actually before a righteous and holy God, that we are the ones who are weak and dependent, desperately in need of our, of our heavenly Father. And so if, if somebody at Hope wanted to try to write, okay, of the members and attenders of Hope, where do I fall in the totem pole? Who is the greatest member of Hope? Um, then, then it wouldn't be rated according to, to any sort of standard of what we think as, uh, as human beings driven by pride. That it wouldn't be how much you know about the Bible or how smart you are or how much you, you give, or how successful you are at, at work. Uh, there are so many ways that we would try to say, okay, this person's important. But really, it's, it's seeing ourselves as, as weak and dependent on the, on the grace and mercy of God, sinners who desperately need the grace of God. And that's where each and every one of us starts, as people who, who need the grace of Christ, who can't save ourselves. That that is that starting place of, of humility. And I've, I've sometimes wondered, you know, what if a church could actually be known for humility? And, and wouldn't that be an amazing thing if that was what Hope Church could be known for, where people said, yeah, you know, Will, his preaching is, it's biblical, it's not Tim Keller. You know, the, the music is, is good, uh, but, you know, it's, it's not Keith Getty. But, you know, they're really humble. <laughs> it really shines through. I mean, that would be the, the, the kind of church that I think that we would, we would long to have because Jesus says that it's the one who is least among you who is greatest. And so we can learn from the, the disciples' failure from their, their lack of humility. But then fourth and, and finally, we can learn from their lack of charity. Uh, look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. So here again, the disciples see somebody casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they say, don't do that. Stop because you're not one of the disciples. And so essentially, they're, they're, they're seeing themselves as, as the ones who have this sort of edge on a relationship with Christ, that, that everyone else should cease and desist immediately. But then Jesus, again, sees that this, this failure and, 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 and calls them out for it. And, and, and really what, what he's calling out is, is a lack of, of charity, that they're, they're, they're being uncharitable, to people who are battling the powers of evil among them, who are, who are working in the name of, of Christ against the power of Satan. And so Christ has this, this 
far broader view than the disciples do. But I think it's important to notice that Jesus is not teaching some kind of universalism. He's not saying that, that all religions are equally valid, or if people are doing good, it doesn't matter how their relationship to Christ, um, because actually he says something that on the surface feels like a contradiction from what he says here in Luke eleven twenty three. So if you turn you know, two pages or whatever it is in your Bible um, forward, um, 11, Luke eleven twenty three. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. So you think about it. Whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus says. And then if you flip back to Luke 9, 50, Jesus says to the disciples, the one who is not, not against you is for you. And so you think, well, well which is it? <laughs> right? Because uh, in the first one, Jesus seems to be making this, this very exclusive claim. You know, in Luke um, eleven twenty three, whoever's not with me is against me. So he's saying that, that unless you have repented of your sins and trusted in me, that, that you are actually opposed to me. So that there, there is, there's no middle ground. There, there's no ambivalence about Christ. You're for him or you're against him, which is, I mean, that's a pretty incredible thing for Jesus to, to claim about himself. You know, and it shows even as we think about our world that, that somebody might say, well, I'm not against Christ. I just don't believe in him. But that, according to scripture, is to be against him. But then I think what, what Jesus is saying in our passage in uh, chapter 9, verse 50, is that he doesn't want the disciples to be able to flip the equation. So, so Jesus is saying, whoever is not with me is against me. But the, Jesus doesn't want the disciples to say, whoever is not with our little group of followers of Christ is against us. Um, and so he, he wants them to have a, a sense of, of charity to others who are, who are, again, battling the power of evil, working in the, in the name of Christ for good, and to show them charity that, that God is at work among them. And I think that, that that's true for us as well. That, that if we see uh, somebody doing, doing work, they're in a different denomination, a different church, a different network, that we're, our reaction shouldn't be to say, Say, well, they're not part of, part of our group, and so really they should just stop what they're, they're doing. But, but to say, no, Christ is saying that they're, they're working for the gospel, so they're not against us. Anyone who's for the gospel is, is for the same thing that, that we are working for in the world. And that's why St. Augustine, the, the great early church father, said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And, and that's really what I, what I talk a lot, a lot about. If you hang out with me very long, I'm going to start talking about the cone of certainty. And probably a lot of you have heard me say this, but the idea is that there, there's a cone of certainty. At the top of the cone are the things that are really certain about the gospel, you know, what it is to be, to be Christian, which comes down to just three questions. Who is God? That God is the, the triune God of the Bible, who revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And the second question is, how are we saved? How are we brought into relationship with God? It's not through works, the things we do, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by, by trusting in Jesus. And then how do we know that that's true? It's through Scripture. 
It's because scripture is God's word. It's truthful in everything that he intends to teach about himself and the world. And that, that really, if we're, if we're giving the same basic answers on, on who is God, how are we saved, and how do you know, that there's this incredible ground of, of unity between Christians, even if they're coming from different denominations, churches, networks, and different places. But then there are, are secondary issues where, where Christians start to disagree. And so an example of this could be differences in, in musical style. Almost every church you go to could have a different style. And it's easy for Christians to be uncharitable, to say, well, those people are wrong because they only sing psalms and we sing hymns about Jesus. Or these people are wrong because they only sing songs written very recently. And, and well, we sing old and new songs, and so that's, that's better. And it's not that discussions about musical style don't matter or that, that all different ways of approaching music in a church are equally um, valid. But I think that, that it's really important to, to look and say, yeah, there, there are people in, in churches that, whether it's musical style or something else, people are coming to know Jesus. They're growing in their faith in different ways in, in churches. And, and so we shouldn't then have the, the reaction of the disciples saying, hey, we told those people that they should stop what they're doing because they don't perfectly agree and align with us in all of the details. But instead, we say what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Or here's, a, here's another example um, becoming more controversial among Christians, um, the difference between what's called Arminianism and Calvinism. Um, and if you don't know what that means, that's okay. Um, and I'd be happy to talk to you about, about the difference. But the, the gist of it is that you know, Calvinists believe that God is sovereign in salvation and that ultimately we're saved uh, and even our, our desire to choose him is a gift. And therefore, that, that we can't get ourselves out of even the love of God because it's completely his work in us. Um, Arminians still believe in God's grace, but say, no, that there is a sense of initiative on our part where we can, it's offered to us, but we can reject the gospel and we can walk away from our faith. And it's even possible to lose uh, salvation. Now, to be a member of hope, you don't have to be on one side of that, that equation. Um, I mean, I know some of you consider yourself Arminian, and some of you consider yourself Calvinist. I won't make you raise your hands. Um, and, but hope is a church, we would fall more on the Calvinist side of the equation. Um, I believe it's biblical. I think it's important. I think it's important to talk about. I think that there's, there's implications of it. But sometimes what can happen is that p both people on either side can say, well, really, the churches on the other side should shut down completely that they shouldn't even exist anymore. And, and so then we become like the, like the disciples. Jesus, I saw someone casting out demons in your name, and I told them to, to stop because they're not with us. But then but Jesus does, doesn't want us to have that kind of others, that, that kind of attitude towards others around us. And you know, I saw a, a great illustration of this at um, our denominational meeting. Um, so it's called General Assembly. Once a year, the whole, all the pastors and elders meet. And in one of the, the sermons, uh, so he's a Presbyterian pastor, um, and 
he was talking about how his brother used to just rage against the gospel and against the, the truths of Christianity. And eventually, um, his, his brother was brought to, friend, to a church by a friend. His, his brother repented, trusted in, in Jesus. He was so excited about this. And, and so he, he started telling somebody in his church, hey, I'm, I'm so happy because my, my brother finally you know, repented of his sins, trusted in, in Jesus. And, and the person in his church said, said, well, you know, what church is he attending? Uh, and, 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 and so he told him the name, and, and he's like, well, you do know that that's an Armenian um, church, don't you? It's, you know, it's not a Calvinist church. And so then the, the uh, Calvinist pastor who's, who's listening to this, you know, just this sense of righteous indignation, says, he said, well, well first of all, it, Armenians are people from Armenia, Arminians are people who follow the, the teaching of, of, of Arminius. And, he's, and he says, that, you know, a, f- a few weeks ago, if my, if my brother had died, he would have gone to hell. That he was out of a relationship with God. And, and now he has repented of his sins, trusted in Jesus, that I actually have confidence that you know, if, if we die, that we're going to be with God. And, and you know, so, so who am I to, to, to stand in the way of a, of a church that... Is preaching the gospel, even if we have real disagreements uh, theologically. And I think that that's, that's right. And, and it's stated very well by J.C. Ryle, 19th century pastor, in his commentary on our passage. He says, We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly on all wisdom, and that people may be, um, be right in the main without agreeing with us. And we must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed, the gospel is preached, and devil, the devil's kingdom is pulled down, though the work may not be done in exactly the way we like. I love that. Not exactly the way we like. Though we must believe that men may be true-hearted followers of Jesus Christ, and yet for the same reason uh, may be kept back from seeing all things in religion just as we do. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted, if Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be or to what church he may belong. And I, again, I think that there's, there's wisdom. And it, it's not saying that theological difference, the theological differences don't matter. Um, it's not saying that, that even differences between churches are irrelevant or shouldn't be talked about. But I think what it is saying is that what, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, not to fall into the, to, the, to the pit of being uncharitable to people who are following Christ, because whoever is not against you is, is for you in the gospel. But then as we wrap up today, um, I think that, that this passage also has a lot to say to those of you who may be just exploring Christianity and not really sure what you believe one way or the other. Because you might have the experience of, you think, hey, Christianity seems interesting, I wanna learn about it. And then you go to church and then somebody says something to you and offends you or you see people acting in ways that, that you don't think is right. You see a lack of faith or you see narrow-mindedness and people aren't asking questions or you see pride and people are arguing about who's the greatest, or, or you, you see people being uncharitable even to fellow brothers and sisters in and, and Christ, and you think, well, maybe there's nothing to this Christianity, because how is it that followers of Christ would be like this? But what I love about the scripture 
is that it's very honest about the disciples of Christ and who they are and how they act. Because, I mean, the New Testament was written by the disciples, by and large, under the inspiration of the Spirit. And it would have been so easy for themselves just to, to leave out these little bits that, that make them look so bad, to leave out the elements of failure in their own lives. But they, they, they put it out there for everyone to see, uh, that the, 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 the founders of Christianity were failures. <laughs> they, they, they missed the mark over and over again. And that's really true for every single human being in Scripture, apart from Jesus, that we all fall short in, in so many ways. But that throughout this entire passage, as the disciples fall over and over again, that Jesus shines forth clearly, that they failed to cast out demons because of a lack of faith, but then Jesus succeeds and he overcomes evil. The disciples failed to understand because of a, a lack of inquisitiveness. Uh, but then yet Jesus comes and goes all the way to, to the cross for a people who are hard-hearted and so slow to, to understand. And the, the, the disciples argue about who is the greatest because of a lack of humility, but then Jesus leaves the glory of heaven and humbles himself all the way to the point of death on the cross. And then the, the disciples fail to be uncharitable to those who are outsiders, but then, then Jesus seeks and, and saves the the lost, the people who are farthest from him, the people who, who we would never see as part of his own group, and he, he brings us in. And so our, our call then is, is always to, to look not at our successes, not at our failures, not at the successes and, and failures of others, but to, to look afresh at the, the work and the, and the beauty of Jesus, what he has done for us. Because his body was broken and his, his blood was shed because we failed ultimately through our, our sin, our rebellion against God. And that, that's where humanity finds itself. And, and that Jesus takes our sin upon himself on the cross. And as we trust in him, our sin is counted to him. His righteousness is counted to us. We're clothed in Christ. We're given new identities, adopted into his family, not because of what we have done, but because of his grace and, and his mercy to us.